As Dana said, my name is Casey Horvath, and I have been an in-covenant member here at this church for over four years. Uh, and during that time, I have served as a teacher in Liberty Kids, a liturgist, a home group leader, a shepherding leader. Uh, both of my sons have been baptized in this church. And for these past four years, I have been under the shepherding care of David White, Will Kenny, and Matt Lulloyne. And I stand in front of you this morning very much as a son of this church. And on February 3rd, my wife, Katie, and I stood up here with our two boys, Asher and Callan, and we were commissioned by the elders of this church to begin the process of church planting. Katie and I have a desire to plant Liberty Church, Lebanon, in order to make disciples of Jesus Christ by the proclamation of the gospel through gathered worship, authentic community, and everyday acts of mercy, all for the glory of God and the good of Lebanon. And so right now, we are at the beginning stages of planting. We are currently praying that God would build and form a core team. More specifically, we are praying that God would move in the hearts of some of you to join our core team. So could you do two things for me? First, will you pray that God would build a core team in Lebanon to plant Liberty Church, Lebanon? I would greatly appreciate that. And number two, if you are moved in any way with interest in joining our core team, will you please come talk to me after the service? I would be much appreciative of that. In addition to all the other areas that I have the privilege of, of serving in, in this church, including the ones I just mentioned, um, as, as Dana said, I occasionally get to preach on Sunday mornings, so today is one of those days, and uh, I am honored and thrilled to preach the Word of God and to worship with you through the Word. So, if you will, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles in front of you, we are on page 993, 993. So 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we will find our text. Much of what Paul has done so far in this epistle is to delineate between right and wrong, sound doctrine versus false doctrine, appropriate behavior versus bad behavior, truth versus falsehood, and so on and so forth. As we read the words of the apostle this morning, you will notice that he continues this same pattern of delineation. But I want us to give special attention to three specific things. First, I want us to see Paul's command. Second, I want us to see Paul's wisdom. And third, I want us to heed and hear Paul's warning. So, Join me in reading the very words of God delivered to us by the Apostle Paul. Beginning at the end of verse 2, we read this. Teach and urge these things. 
If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Will you bow your head with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, as we gather as your people, the sheep of your pasture, as we come under the authority of your word, we pray that you would instruct us, that you would open our minds and our hearts and that you would lead us into the way of everlasting. We pray this in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So let's just jump right into Paul's command. In verse 2, Paul commands Timothy to teach and urge these things. This is a common theme throughout First and Second Timothy. Paul places a great deal of emphasis on the importance of teaching sound doctrine all throughout the epistle. If you remember, this is why Paul left Timothy in Ephesus, so that he would silence the false teachers that were present. And in contrast to the false teaching, Paul commands Timothy to teach sound doctrine. He is to preach unadulterated truth in the place of theological error. And this actually is the responsibility of every pastor and every elder that holds office in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason Paul makes such a huge deal about doctrine is because, as we saw in chapter 4 a couple weeks ago, false teaching leads people astray to the point of apostasy and then ultimately destruction. In short, bad theology damns to hell those who teach it and those who adhere to it. But in contrast, good theology brings forth true godliness, which ultimately leads to sanctification and spiritual growth. If you'll notice in verse 3, the Apostle Paul provides us with the standard by which we are to measure all teaching. Paul gives us two criteria in verse Three. He says, one, if a teaching, and that can come to us by, by many different forms. It can come in the form of a blog post. It can come through a systematic theology book. It can come through a sermon. It can come to us over a cup of coffee. However it comes to us, if a teaching contradicts the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, then they are to be considered heresy. 
And it's important to note that when Paul says the words of our Lord Jesus Christ here in verse 3, he is not simply talking about the red letters in your Bible, only the words that Jesus uttered while he was on the earth. No, he is talking about all of Scripture because Jesus is the incarnate word and the inscribed word is an extension of his authority over his church. And so the Bible as a whole, from Genesis to Revelation, is the word of Jesus. And so, in simple terms, if something contradicts the Holy Scriptures, Paul is saying it is to be considered false. That's the first criteria. The second one, if a teaching, again, it can come to us in a variety of vehicles, but if a teaching promotes ungodliness then is to be understood as dissenting from the truth and to be considered false teaching. So, for example, when a pastor by the name of Rob Bell wrote a book a few years ago denying the wrath of God and denying the existence of hell, these two criterias should have been employed by every Christian who read the book. Sadly, many did not, and Rob Bell's work Love Wins became a popular work in America. But clearly, the message of Love Wins contradicted the very words of Jesus. Speaking of the final judgment at the end of the age, Jesus said the following in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. He says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. In verse 46, Jesus adds, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous unto eternal life. And so you can see by just judging the words of Rob Bell against the words of Jesus, we see in one sentence, the words of Jesus prove Rob Bell's teaching to be false. Furthermore, the teaching that God does not punish sin ultimately gives people license to sin. And so again, Judging by the second criteria, we see it does not promote godliness. So, conclusively, using this standard that Paul gives us, here in verse 3, we can say that love wins does not pass the test. Now, it is also important to note that anytime we question doctrine or teaching, we must allow people to clarify their positions and give them the opportunity to correct their teaching in the light of truth. Why? Because that's how God treated you and me when we were rebels. Why we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has always been patient with you and me, and so we should extend patience to others. So as common practice, the Apostle Paul gave the Holy Spirit time and space to bring about repentance in the hearts of those he corrected. However, for those who persisted in wrongdoing after being warned, those are the people that Paul pronounced judgment upon. And we must always keep in mind the whole point of correcting false teaching is not to destroy, but to restore. Using this same standard that Paul gives us here in verse 3, many faithful elders and many faithful pastors called for Rob Bell to repent. Unfortunately, he did not, and he has continued down a destructive path and has widely been recognized as a heretic. 
With that, for those of us who do teach, for those of us who might be quick to offer counsel or guidance, it is easy for us to run other people's words and works through this criteria. But for those of us who teach, we must be running our words through this criteria. We must be asking ourselves, what I'm teaching or what I'm saying, does it contradict the words of God or does it affirm it? And am I promoting anything that encourages ungodliness? This is important that we do this because teaching that contradicts the word of God promotes or promotes ungodliness ultimately ends in the destruction of those who teach it and those who embrace it. It is important that we employ that method on our own words. In verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul describes the behavior and character of the false teachers in Ephesus. These two verses are in no way a glowing review. In fact, the Apostle Paul seeks to shame the false teachers who are persistent in wrongdoing. This is why the Apostle Paul said in chapter 5 that the elders who are guilty of wrongdoing, who are convicted by the court of the church based upon the testimony of two or three witnesses, must be publicly rebuked. This is for two reasons. First, public shame is a most helpful aid in making sinners repent. And number two, public rebuke serves as a warning to anyone who might follow suit. It is very likely that in verses 4 and 5, Paul is describing either Hymenaeus or Alexander, one of the two false teachers that he publicly excommunicated from the church that we read about back in chapter 1. I say that because if you recall in chapter 4, Paul condemned a false teaching associated with asceticism. That is the ideology or ideology or belief that says in order to earn salvation, one must deny themselves of pleasure. In short, it is a sort of teaching that was, was famous at various points in history, but Paul said in chapter 4 that this doctrine was demonic and ultimately brought about the ruin of people. So then, on the other side of this false teaching spectrum, here in chapter 6, Paul is addressing another form of heresy, one that is closely associated with materialism, which is a different teaching that says the pursuit of pleasure and things are the most important goals of the human life. In other words, salvation is measured by the degree of how wealthy one might be. So, it is very plausible that you have Hymenaeus, who embodied and taught one of these two teachings on the one side of the spectrum. And then on the other side, you had Alexander, who espoused and propagated the teaching on the other side. One speaking of self-denial, the other preaching a false doctrine of indulgence. Regardless of who exactly was teaching which doctrine in particular, it is important to know that in verse 5, Paul says that this false teacher believed godliness was a means to achieve great material gain. And this, of course, exposed the heart-level motivation of this particular false teacher. 
that heart level motivation was greed. It appears that the mantra or the crux of this false teacher's doctrine was, quote, godliness is a means to financial gain. Which brings us to our second point, Paul's wisdom. So that was point one, Paul's command to delineate between good theology and bad theology. We now see Paul's wisdom. In verses six through eight, Paul teaches the wisdom of contentment. In Matthew chapter six, verses 19 through 34, one of Jesus' most famous teachings on money is recorded for us. Perhaps you are even familiar with these words. Quote, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's worth noting that right after these verses about money, Matthew records that Jesus went on to talk about contentment. And it's even more interesting to note that Paul, here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, follows this same order and structure of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6. So if you put Matthew chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 6 side by side, you will see that it's almost as if Paul has an early manuscript of Matthew's gospel open as he open on the table next to him as he is writing his letter to Timothy, which would make it appear as though Paul is analyzing the false teachers in Ephesus through the very grid he talked about in verse 3. Does this teaching agree or contradict with the words of Jesus? Does this teaching promote godliness or ungodliness? The other possibility for the similarity in structure between Matthew's gospel and Paul's letter is this, and this is very likely, the same Holy Spirit who inspired Matthew to record Jesus' words in a certain order is the same Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to write his own words in a similar order, which is just a testimony to the supernatural nature of the Bible. The Bible isn't just any old book, it is the very Word of God. Regardless of how these two chapters came to share their similarities, we must acknowledge that Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 6 are in 100% and full agreement with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, what exactly is the Apostle Paul saying? In verse 6, the Apostle Paul clarifies that godliness is in fact of great gain, but it's not the type of gain that this money-hungry false teacher in Ephesus is after. Again, if you remember in chapter 4, Paul said that godliness has value in this life and the next. In this life, godliness produces peace and joy through holiness and obedience. 
all of us live in this prosperous country, and we have observed and experienced enough to know that this is true. Money cannot buy happiness, and it certainly cannot secure peace and joy. Come on, even P. Diddy and Mace, back in the 90s, they had a song, Mo Money, Mo Problems, right? (laughs) We know this to be true. Just because someone is rich does not mean that they are happy. In contrast to what money can't get you or buy you, let me tell you what godliness does get you. And this is something that Katie and I are instructing our boys in every day as parents. All over Scripture, God makes promises of peace and joy to the obedient and the righteous. And that is not an overstatement. All over the Bible, God is making the promise of peace and joy to those who are obedient and those who are righteous. Now, God does say that the obedient and the righteous will face trial and tribulation in this life. But even in their suffering, the godly does not lose their peace or joy. In fact, their suffering has purpose and value, and it is designed to produce even more godliness in them. Godliness is of great gain in this life because it produces tangible, real peace and joy that you cannot buy. Godliness is of great gain in this life. Godliness is also of great gain in the life to come. Again, in chapter 4, Paul said that we as Christians toil and strive knowing that our godliness will bring about a reward. What is that reward? God himself is that reward. Paul said we strive and toil, quote, because we have our hope set on the living God. Those who practice godliness have great anticipation for the next life because in the next life, they are rewarded with the person of God. Godliness is of great gain in this life and the next. In verse 7, Paul says, we didn't bring anything of material value into this world and we won't be able to take it with us. And in saying this, Paul points out the finite nature of material wealth. And thus, Paul exposes the foolishness of setting your hope in money or wealth or possessions. It's foolish to hope in money because, as Jesus said, identity theft is a real thing, online banking thieves exist, wildfires eat up equity, markets crash, and federal governments fail. It is foolish to hope in that which is finite. But as Pastor Matt showed us just a couple weeks ago, Paul says, it is wise to invest in godliness and to set our eternal hope on the living God. In verse 8, we see the wisdom of gospel-shaped contentment. 
Paul said the following in his letter to the Christian church in Rome. He said, quote, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, not also with Christ, graciously give us all things? Our greatest need was this. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was our greatest need. But God, being rich in mercy, met our greatest need when he sent Jesus into the world to live a sinless life in our place, suffer the wrath of God we deserved on the cross, and be raised from the dead for our salvation. Because our greatest need has been met by God, Paul says, we who are believers in Jesus Christ can be content in this life. But as Mallory rightly pointed out, many of us are not content. We feel discontent with a variety of things. For some of us, it's our singleness. We want to be married. For others, it's our job. We want to do something else, something more noble. Some of us might even be discontent with our car or our house. There's a thousand different things that might make up the discontentment we experience in our current situation. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, the reason for our discontentment is rooted in the fact that we have lost sight of the gospel. And no one here is guiltier of this than me. Over the past year, I have lost sight of the gospel time after time after time, and in each scenario, I became a very discontent person, extremely discontent. We grow discontent because we have forgotten that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We become discontent because we forget that we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We lose sight of the gospel and we become very discontent. In fact, the level of our contentment is directly related to the degree in which we understand and value the gospel. More than this, the person who has experienced the gospel is not only content, but they are also generous. Listen to what David says in Psalm 37. He says, quote, I was young and now I'm old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken, 
Again, there's a promise to the righteous. Or their children begging for bread. They are always generous and lend freely. The natural outworking of true contentment is generosity. Knowing that we have received the riches in fullness from God through Jesus Christ, we can be generous because we know we are rich. Therefore, the person who has truly experienced the gospel is both content and generous. This is what is meant by gospel-shaped contentment. This brings us to our third point. So we saw Paul's command regarding teaching. We see his wisdom concerning contentment. And now I want us to hear and heed Paul's warning. In verses 9 through 10, the apostle gives us two warnings. First, in verse 9, he says that those who have an insatiable desire to store up material wealth for themselves will end up in ruin and destruction. Those aren't my words. Those are Paul's words. Those are the words of the Holy Spirit. Ruin and destruction. The second warning in verse 10 is directed to those who love money. Similar to the first warning, Paul says that those who engage in the idolatry of money will wander away from the faith, lured by their own greed, and end up harming themselves in the process. In both of these warnings, Paul is not condemning wealth, nor is he saying that money is a bad thing. Money itself is not the root of all kinds of evil. Paul is explicit. He says it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It is the idolatry of money. Why is this the root of all kinds of evils? Because it's an insatiable lust for money that has the power to motivate you and I to do all sorts of regrettable things that will ultimately lead to our end. There was an older gentleman that I had worked with for some time for a few years. This man spent most of his adult life incarcerated on federal drug trafficking charges. And I specifically remember a conversation I had with him where he said to me, it wasn't the drugs that put me in prison, it was my greed. The desire for wealth has the power to cause us to do things that will betray our consciences, forsake our values, and ultimately rebel against God and his word, and then ultimately bring us to our ruin. This was true of that man I worked with, and this was true of the false teacher that Paul describes here in chapter 6. Lest we think of ourselves as wise and become fools, we should take seriously Paul's warnings concerning a desire for wealth and money, especially when we have received all spiritual riches and blessings in Jesus Christ. We should be careful not to trade the treasure of Christ and the treasure of the gospel 
for fool's gold in the finite and the material. Church, all of us, like sheep, go astray. And this morning, maybe you feel like a lamb who has gotten stuck in a thicket of false teaching. Or perhaps the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart right now and convicting you that you are the false teacher wolf who is stalking the sheep. Maybe you are the sheep who has wandered off, forgetting just how good the good shepherd is, and you've lost sight of the gospel and have become discontent. Or perhaps you feel like you've been lured away by your own love for money. And now you find yourself stuck in a trap. Whatever the case may be, remember this. Remember that the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, right now is leaving the 99 to find the one, and that is you. Right now, he is coming for you. Listen to the words of your faithful shepherd. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, turn away from the bad theology of false teachers and turn towards the truth of God's word. Repent, turn away from the foolishness of this world and take hold and cherish the gospel and find your heart content. Repent. Turn away from the idolatry of material wealth and worship God, and you will find great reward in this life and the next life. Bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the promises that you make to us, particularly about being a shepherd who cares for his sheep who longs for his sheep, who will leave the 99 for the one. I pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts, that we would cling to the gospel, cling to Christ, cherish and value the gospel. And I pray, Father, that we would experience true gospel-shaped contentment. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.